today the all text edition of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, just leave our mics on and they have to determine what we typed by the key presses or what? There you go. <laughs> no, no. What we'll do is like the Jeopardy edition. We will provide the transcript people with the typed version and they have to then do voice acting. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 141 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Ruben Lerner. Hi, everyone. Curtis McHale. Hola. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that is Liam, is it Veitch? Almost a Veitch. Veitch? Uh, so, I yeah. should have asked. That's, that's right, yeah. <laughs> everybody gets it wrong, so it's one of those things. It's all good. Do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure, yeah. I'm the founder at FreelanceLift.com, the author, recent author, author of uh, the book, Stop Thinking Like a Freelancer, The Evolution of a $1 Million Web Designer. I'm the founder as well, and it's kind of the, that's what the journey the, the book tracks, founder at UK-based agency, Tone, which is T-O-N-E.co.uk. Um, so we built sites for pretty much everybody around the world. And, uh, and yeah, that's the business that I've built from a, a rented desk in a co-working space and a laptop, really. Nice. Now, I ran across, I think it was a blog post that you wrote about mm-hmm. growing to be a million-dollar business or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that's cumulative. It's, it's kind of um, it, when, you know, when people say, yeah, this is a million-dollar business, then it's kind of the, the, the assumption is that that's in one year. So I do put a little bit of a disclaimer in there and say, you know, that's accumulated revenue over – that was about a three-year period. So, But, you know, from a standing start from – Somebody who, as I say, started out with a laptop and, uh, and a rented desk and a co-working space. It's, it's, and it's something I'm really proud of and something that I feel I can teach. You know, I've, there's lots of things that I picked up along the way, which I didn't pick up first time around. First time ultimately ended in failure and me joining a, a larger corporate. And that's really some of the things that I like to talk about in the book. And I talk about at freelance lift as well. Really the, the high leverage stuff, not, not, not talking about the how best to organize your workstation or the best font size for proposals, you know. <laughs> You know, I think a lot of times we focus on those kinds of things, though, because they're easy to control. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. my, the layout on my desktop or which app I'm using or which font I, I'm using. And so you wind up spinning your wheels on the things that aren't going to make your business awesome. I think which font you use on your website, you know, it might change your conversion rate, but ultimately being the right candidate and getting in front of the right people is going to make way more difference than what font you use on your proposal. Mm, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, that's just, it's, it's about that, the small things versus the, the big things, you know, the high leverage stuff. 
And those are the things that are going to really make the difference longer term. So yeah, the other uh, problem there is we all dive into like what is, you know, what tools is say Liam using or what tools am I using? And like, because I use Liam's tools, I'll suddenly, you know, start generating more revenue. And that's totally not the case, right? We don't have his experience. We're not him, essentially. Well, people would like right. me more because I have that awesome accent. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a little uh, more agreed. common where he comes from, though. I'm curious, Liam, I mean, are, are you a one-man shop or do you have people working for you just so I can sort of get a, a better sense of the agency you run? Yeah, so the, the nine people here now. Um, so that nine is built from designers, a couple of developers, and uh, and yeah, a couple of like account level people and a project manager, uh, and also one marketing person. So it's built to such a level that it doesn't really require my day to day support. Uh, but I'm here. I'm I'm still here on a, on a daily basis. I'm still hustling, and that is again one of the flavors that I, th- I think is a little bit of a differentiator really between the things that I'm saying and the things that that people are saying that to be blunt their job is to sell information to freelancers as opposed to doing freelancing themselves or being in a position of being a service provider themselves so again i think that's that's a key differentiator between me and others you know i'm still in the field i'm still working with clients on a daily basis and and yeah the, there are nine of us now at that agency and it's something again that, that's doing quite well i'm curious like when you had your laptop in the co-working space and you said i'm going to start doing you know this sort of consulting was your eventual goal, yes, I want to have a company with lots of employees, and so you've been marching toward that goal, or did it just sort of happen and now you're trying to help other people to get to that same place, but without the bumps along the way? Yeah, that's it's a great question, and it's one of those things, isn't it? As a small business, you know, forgetting freelancing for a second, as a small business, as a one-person business, as a two-person business, things change really quickly, and that's part of the beauty of it, being agile and moving from point to point without really knowing which which way you're going but it, but it's fun no i didn't set out to build a nine person business i didn't set out to build an agency really i, I set out to to build something that was going to do better this time as a freelancer so what happened was we fell into some pretty decent sized gigs um figured out a few things that worked this time um again the kind of the thing that we've not mentioned here is is the hiatus the reason that the reason that kind of i kind of tried again which was me joining a, a larger corporate so i was exposed to quite big business ideas aggressive vision based stuff that i took on board and i implemented in a at the time a side business then the second time around as a freelancer so i was putting in place big business ideas but not necessarily aiming towards being a big business and that's one of the things i kind of i caveat everything i'm saying with freelance lift that look i'm not sure how to be an agency because ultimately do we really want eight employees do we really want to you know have people sort of underneath you that you've got to be responsible for a lot of people just want to learn more it's not about that it's about putting in in place the things that are going to generate more interest more intention and and ultimately more revenue and it's up to you then that revenue to take you for, for better or for worse I've, I've ended up hiring people but i could have easily kind of probably taken the brunt of all that work and, and not done that gone that path so do you spend most of your time then working on building the business and finding clients or do you spend some of your time actually doing the work for the clients yeah, I've, I've moved myself out a little bit of, of day-to-day work production, as I call it. But I tend to do one a month, so I, I get involved with one client on a hands-on basis. But for the most part, it's, yeah, strategy on how we move forward as a business, um, you know, the agency being the business. And then, you know, actually, I'm spending a lot more time at the moment on freelance lift, so putting together videos, books, and, and all that kind of stuff. And that really is where I'm spending a lot more of my time. 
on the basis that things are kind of taking over okay. So the things that I'm involved with are, are pitches for the agency and stuff like that. Pitches, strategy-based stuff, figuring out where we move from here, financials and, and, and that kind of stuff. And again, when I say that, it's, it actually bores me thinking about it, but I don't know. I'm, just, I'm that kind of person, I think. I like to go headlong into the strategic areas as, as much as I can, but I still, I still have a you know, toe in the water, as it were, from a, from a service provider point of view. I guess the next question that I have then is at what point do you hire your first employee or your first person to work for you? Again, that's a, that's a good question. And um, it, there's actually a passage in this in the book about this, which is that the, the first person I hired was my brother. And he was in a place where he didn't really have the skills to be an agency person. And I think one of the things that one of the beauties of having somebody uh, that you that you know hiring as, as your first hire is that it can be very, very casual. So again, what I talk about quite a lot as well is, is the remote team aspect too. So it depends on where you want to make savings. If your vision is to work five hours a week and to do the highest leverage stuff and have other people around you doing that other stuff, then you hire it at a certain point. If you are the type that wants to be delivering for the most part, then you hire at a different point. I hired when I kind of needed it. And I like that phrase, hire when it hurts. So it was hurting at that point. Um, and it, it was it was that thing of, okay, well, I need somebody to help spread this load they weren't a designer they were helping with more day-to-day administrative aspects so i think you can hire somebody again the the virtual assistant thing most people have had a try at that i think the key when it comes to hiring somebody is to have a process in place that they can move into because without that it does end up taking a lot more of your time than than you would have expected but yeah in terms of making your first hire i think it depends i think it depends i don't know what you guys would think there but i think it depends that on the, the vision that you've got for your time and where you want to put it, you know, if you want to work five, five hours a week, then you need to hire sooner. If you think I'm okay with working 30, 40, 50 hours a week, then you hire a little bit later. One other thing that I've run into, cause I, I have a few people that have worked for me off and on is it's really easy for me to sell myself. Mm. You know, I, I know what I'm capable of. I know what it's going to take for me to do it. And I kind of have a reputation out in the community. People more or less know who I am. People who come to my site more or less know who I am. And so when I'm trying to sell them on, well, I have this other guy that is going to help me do it. Some people are a little bit more, well, can't you just do it? And a lot of yeah. times the answer is not really. I don't have the time. So, mm-hmm. so how do you sell that and make everybody comfortable with the way things go? I mean, I usually give them some kind of personal guarantee, but that doesn't always work either. Yeah, I would always hire in, into kind of like non-value add positions. So, yes, you're. I would kind of pretty much say that you're going to be the guy that's delivering it. Again, I've not really hired into a position where I'm replacing me. I've always hired into a position where I'm building a team around me and my mm-hmm. skill set, which I suppose is where you're driving with with that. But I would always look first to hire into a position that was that was lower lower skilled that you yeah. could kind of train somebody to take time away from you. You know, you're not at your best when you're. I don't know, responding to customer service or customer support emails. You're not at your best when you're, I don't know, formatting a proposal into something that that is going to go out to a client. You're probably at your best standing in front of somebody or chatting to somebody over Skype or over the phone. Um, but the administrative aspects, uh, the mechanical aspects, as it were, are always better to be handled by somebody else if you want to eventually pull yourself out from working on your business and from it being dependent on you from a replacing yourself point of view again that's a tricky one i'm not sure i even have the answer because as you say ultimately if you've got the reputation then people are looking to you to be that end deliverer you know that service provider 
That makes sense. So you hire somebody that's a little lower level, and that's generally what I've been doing. But at the same time, my team or my team and I are going to handle this. It, mm. it sometimes is a harder sell. Sometimes it's an easier sell, but sometimes yeah. it's a trickier sell. I think sell. it depends on your branding too, though, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've been branded as yeah. Chuck as opposed to branding yes. as an agency, right? When you hire an agency, you know that you know the person you're talking to day one may not be the person that does the whole thing end to end because you're hiring an agency. Mm. Yeah, and but, that's a good point because I've, I've always kind of, in the, in the second time around, is, is positioned myself as a team of people. So I was quick to use the word we, uh, you know, we we will do this, we will do that. And yeah, I think I think that's the difference, isn't it, between having a personal brand and having a brand that is a brand effectively and it's on two feet. So what, yeah, you're, like, what brand, you're saying brand, is I'm that sorry. I may have to reboot into a team brand. I mean, I can still claim everything that my company has done. It's just stuff that I've done. Yeah, and I have a few friends that operate under their own name, really, but like it's, you know, the team that works with mm-hmm. me. So it's yeah. all about the team, but they still mostly trade on their own name, really. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, like, I've been hedging on that for years. And I mean, I've heard the argument that you should brand as a business and brand as a team and not brand as yourself. And I just can't get myself to do it. And I'm not sure if it's because I feel like, you know, I'm the brand that people are coming to. I mean, what you're saying, Chuck, is exactly what I experienced. People come to me because they've heard my name. They've read my articles, they see my videos, something like that, and they come to me, and it just, they get very unexcited hearing about someone else working with me or working with them. At the same time, though, I think if I were to rebrand as a an agency or as a company, that would sort of take away from some of the branding that I've managed to get so far. So, so far, I've just hedged, and I've just continued to say, oh, it's it's me and my company, and we do X, Y, Z, and I don't think it's been that effective, to tell you the truth. I think what I'm hearing though is, you know, where do you want to go? Where do you want to wind up? Who do you want to attract? And what kind of a sale do you want to make? Mm-hmm. So if they're coming to charlesmaxwood.com and to hire somebody, then they're expecting to hire Charles Maxwood. But if they come to an agency site and they know that, you know, I own or run or work at the agency, it changes the conversation a little bit because they recognize that even though I might still be trading a little bit on my own personal reputation, that they are dealing with an agency and the agency is going to work things out to solve the problem. Yeah, and it's, it's about personal goals as well and personal vision. Where yeah. What do you want to get out of it? Because, you know, somebody like Paul Jarvis, who's a great designer who... All he does is bank himself on that personal brand, but book himself like six months into the future, you know? So rather than kind of having that issue of, I don't have time, it's, it's like, yeah, I do have time, but it's in May, you know, <laughs> it's, it's some time away. And I think that aligns with his personal objectives. He doesn't want to get much bigger than, 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 than he is now, but what he would like to do, I think, and again, I'm paraphrasing what his, what his thoughts are here, but is to kind of beef up the, the rate that he can build. And yeah, book himself into the future as a result without kind of saying no to people. So do you guys have any more questions about this in particular? Because I I want to change topics a little bit. I'm sort of curious. I mean, basically, Liam has mentioned on a few, like a few times so far. Well, you know, my first time around that it didn't work so well. So I'm curious to know what was this first time around and what have you changed? What in terms of your, whether it's branding or procedures or clients or anything, did you change that made things so much more successful now? Again, I'm going to have to try and answer this without going into book promotion mode. So you'll have to excuse me. But the first time around, it, it was a lack of really understanding that to be a business, to be successful, you've got to think like a business and not necessarily think like a freelancer. So when I say that, what I really mean is when you, you know, head around the web, you're not necessarily looking at the right type of information for you at that particular moment in time. And 
I've pinned it down into five areas really, which is the first one, which I call getting evolution ready, which basically just means understanding where you are right now and really putting down where you would like to be. A lot of people miss that out, miss out the business planning aspect. And what I'm not talking about here is a cumbersome old school business plan. What I lay out is a one pager. So it's inspired by the lean canvas, but that just says, okay, here is where I want to go. So last time around, the first time around, I didn't do any of that. I was kind of hopping from point to point to point and flipping really from opportunity to opportunity as well, trying to supplement that income without actually saying, no, this is what I want to do. This is the rate that I'm currently billing. This is the rate that I would need to get to to meet that goal. And here is the audience that I'm going to aim at. Then it's looking at, okay, well, how can I repel the bad apple clients and attract the dream clients? So the first time around, I was on channels like elance.com, odes.com. Fiverr wasn't around back then, but that kind of channel. And all I found was poor quality clients. What I didn't understand at that point was, look, people aren't hiring me because I was a designer at that point. They're not hiring everybody because they're a designer, writer, marketer, or whatever. They're hiring you because they have a business problem that they feel that your services can remedy. So that's the second thing, really, understanding that you're being hired to solve a business problem. That's something I didn't have locked down last time. And as a result, my website was, you know, had splattered all over it. The things that you've seen a million times before, like a, a cityscape or whatever with we build websites. And again, I'll I give a, an interesting example, which is a headline. We specialize in building websites. That, in inverted commas, appears 891,000 times on Google. That is to say... 891,000 pages are also mentioned <laughs> the fact that they specialize in building websites. And that's something I didn't understand that, as I say, everybody's talking about that. So as a service provider, you blend into the background. It becomes so common that it actually becomes blended into the background. So yeah, so that was the second thing. The third thing really is then understanding that in order to multiply my earnings, I needed to multiply my exposure. So building a platform it just wasn't something that i did before so i wasn't blogging i wasn't active on social media building relationships i wasn't out there providing value in the space and as a result i kind of felt sorry for myself that nobody knew who i was nobody knew what my site address was and nobody even arrived at it third thing the fourth thing was understanding was a lack of understanding actually that freelancing comes with instability at its at its core it comes with that income roller coaster which generally is, is driven by the fact that it's unpredictable. One week you could have a good week and the next week you could have a very poor week. Um, understanding that and putting things in place that counteract that, like recurring revenue opportunities with clients, like building small products that can bring in the you know revenue in the, in the slow weeks. I didn't have any of that in place. And as a result, I just kind of lived with the fact that freelancing was unstable. And then the fifth thing, which I never really got to in the end, but the fifth part of this freelancer evolutionary growth cycle, and I apologize for nipping to, uh, to, to book mode here, but the fifth part of that was really understanding that I needed to loosen the reins a little bit. It wasn't, it isn't necessary to work on your business 60 hours a week. You can put things in place, systems, processes, and people that are going to fill the gaps in the areas that you don't necessarily need to be involved with. So those were the key lessons, those five key things I didn't have in place last time that I did have in place the second time around. And those have been a major catalyst. And in fact, the only catalyst really, the only difference, because I'm still the same designer that I was back then, obviously with, um, you know, a little bit more years behind me in terms of experience and, and, uh, you know, a, a better level of, uh, of understanding of what, how the web works and stuff. But deep down, I'm that same designer. My, my clients were always happy the first time around. My clients are happy this time around. It's just that this time around, uh, you know, I figured a few things out which enabled me to grow beyond a freelancer. Mm-hmm. 
So you mentioned that people need to think of their business as a business and not as, you know, in other words, don't think like a freelancer, which I think is the name of your book or the tagline of your book. I don't remember. Yeah. I'm sorry. But no, it's, it's fine. But what I'm, what I'm curious about then is what are, you you talked about some of them, but what are the, like the major leverage things that you can do to uh, start acting like your business is a business instead of, you know, I'm doing my hobby for other people so that I can sometimes pay the bills. Yeah, there, there are a few. I mean, the, the, the key one that I'm, I'm, I'm attacking on behalf of freelance left members at the moment, trying to help them get better at is explaining their services better, you know, explaining why a client should work with them and doing it in such a way that they understand that there are two types of freelancer. There's the laborer, the person that takes instruction, the person that you'll find on elance.com, uh, fiverr.com and that kind of thing, who takes an instruction from a client and delivers it and generally delivers it on an hourly, bit, hourly rate basis. A business, on the other hand, would kind of say, okay, I'm treating this as a long-term relationship. I'm going to be a, an asset to you as a business, as a service provider, and I'm going to act that way. So I'm going to explain specifically how I can make a difference to your business. I'm going to do it, in, and I'm going to kind of handle myself in such a way that I'm going to grow this into a longer-term relationship that's going to ensure that we're all that we're all happy at, at the other side of it. So that's the first thing, really understanding that you're not being hired because you can design, write, or code. You're being hired because you can solve a business problem, or so the client thinks, and positioning yourself and making messaging that speaks to that. And then understanding, right, okay, well, I need to build a platform. I'm not exempt from advertising. I'm not exempt from being aggressive in terms of a vision and, and going to target a specific audience. These are the things that for my money, freelancers are missing. That vision, that understanding, okay, well, I need to advertise. How do I advertise? How do I get attention? That's just not there. A lot of the time, we're busy beavering away doing the work, and we're not actually thinking, okay, well, how do I market myself? How do I position myself like a business? How do I position myself like a, an asset? How do I understand uh, the leverage that great copy will give me and, and that kind of stuff? So it's, it's structure, really, more than anything, to answer the question that is the difference between the way that more often than not, freelancers work and the way that businesses work, it's that structure and that ability to plan ahead. I think one of the key mindset shifts is also looking at things as an investment as opposed to an expense. As I transition to, like, will I invest in an editor for my content? Will I do this? I'm looking at what's, like, what's my possible value out of it and not how much is this going to cost me immediately. Yeah, Jala. I completely agree with uh, what you're saying, Liam, and I've, I've been increasingly making this shift, although I still don't feel like I'm making the sale quite made the shift to talking using that language. But I also find, and maybe this is just a function of the clients, the potential clients who are meeting with me or who are coming to me, I find that when I try to talk this language, they're just a little confused because they see me as, oh yeah, the developer we hired or the DBA DBA we hired to help us out with things. And Mm -hmm. when I say that I want to go beyond that, they're not quite sure what to do with that. Yeah, and, and again, a lot of that is probably specific to your niche as a, as a dev, but I think a lot of the time you still have skills. You've got skills in business that you can sort of transplant onto other people. So it's it's not necessarily um, letting them pigeonhole you. It's it's giving them ideas that break beyond what they feel your the the realm of your expertise is, because that's the that's the key really. When it, especially when it comes to building mutually beneficial partnerships, it's kind of saying. Yeah, I need, to, I need to go to this guy because he can help me with anything. <laughs> and it's that, it's having that kind of relationship with the clients that's going to generate the longer term revenue. I mean, I stumbled across a really, really interesting stat when I was looking at some of the previous numbers for Tone. And it was that 
on average, the people that buy again have spent over an 18 month period from that first, inv first investment, um, 136% more. That is to say, if somebody spends $10,000 with us today, over the next 18 months, they're going to spend another 13,000. So that, what that gives me is a lot of stability, a lot of um, reliability in, in earnings. And that only comes from being the expert. It only comes from having other things that we can sell them effectively, but from a standpoint of ideas, a standpoint of mutually beneficial ideas that we're going to put in place for, for businesses. So what if you're kind of a generalist? It, even can better. You, I mean, Can you just not afford to be a generalist? Well, th that's, I suppose, what I'm getting at. The more general you are, the more strings you have to the ball, to your ball, the more um, services you can sell to people. But I think what, you, what you're referring to there is generalist in the sense of the market. Is that right? Yeah. So if you're focused, I guess you can be a generalist, but you still need to focus in one area at a time. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think so. And one of the things that, cause it, it's, it's the most difficult thing, I think, for a lot of us to get, get our heads around. It's like, I'm going to minimize the pool uh, of people that I'm going to be working with here by a factor of a hundred, a thousand. And um, I'm going to minimize the people that I'm going to be dealing with from millions to maybe 12, 15 people that are my dream client that I would work with. That's a bit of a mindset shift. And it sometimes feels like you're blocking out those other people, but it doesn't necessarily need to be that way. I've seen lots of people build small, sub brands for specific sectors and still have that kind of main core brand that is fairly general and um, you know or putting putting out their sort of ideas and, um, and flavors of what they do and spinning it so that it works for a, a certain sector and yeah and because again joanna weber uh, from copy hackers and I've, I've probably pronounced her name horribly wrong as well but joanna from copy hackers she puts down one of the key things that she saw as a turning point was changing what she was being referred to as as from a content writer to specific copywriter for software as a service businesses and by doing that she was able to narrow down the, the amount of people that were eventually gonna, ultimately going to buy her service but in doing so was able to charge higher rates was able to win more clients and was able to build a reputation in that space. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we had someone on the show a few months ago, I think, who, I mean, many people have made the same point. So one of these days it will actually sink in with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, you know, it can't be that everyone else is wrong and I'm right and yet I'm still, you know, <laughs> struggling there. In any event, <laughs> what was I going to say? But we had someone on the show who made the analogy to a plumber. Maybe it was, maybe it was Eric. Right. Who said now that I'm quoting everyone um, who said, like, when you have a clogged drain, do you want to go to Joe plumbing or do you want to go to Joe's drain unclogging specialist removal service? I'm mm -hmm. sure phrased better. And when, when you sort of put it that way, so obviously you want to go to the specialist. But in our own businesses, it's it's I don't know. I have this great reticence to feel like I'm pigeonholing myself and removing possible clients or possible interesting work. And sometimes, though, you, you might find that you are specializing in a certain area without knowing. Um, and again, I don't know too much about your kind of back catalog of clients, but there may be things that unite them that are bringing them to your door, so other clients. And effectively, you're still within a certain specialism there. It's just that it, you can't put a label on it. Um, I mean, I was, I was talking to an illustrator last night, and she was telling me that she didn't have an idea of who her specific audience might be. And when I talked about it and talked about the types of people that she had been working with, what we found were that they were business owners themselves, that they were entrepreneurs, that were, they were vocal in their space, that they were content creators. So straight away, we could kind of draw a line between all of the similarities that they had. 
And to her mind, she was still quite a generalist. But what we were able to do is to pick out some key areas that we were kind of saying, okay, well, they have at least this, 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 and this in common. So let's talk to this, this, and this when we're talking about the way that the benefits that, that the service can have. So like ultimately, there's always a common denominator between a lot of these things. And really at Tone, I, I'm the biggest hypocrite going because really at Tone, we don't have too much of a massive specialism. But what I've identified over that time is the ability to hone in on an audience is always driven by the, the, the size of the audience. The smaller it is, the better you can, you can go and get access into them. Um, yeah, it comes down to that, that attention thing as well. If you have the attention of everybody, then you ultimately get the attention of nobody. If you're looking to try and get the attention of a certain sector, then you know, you're going to have a much better chance of doing that. So my question is, I, I've been trying to think of the things that businesses do that I don't. Mm-hmm. And so there are things like advertising. I don't do any advertising. I, you know, I mostly do content marketing if I do anything. But, you know, are there other things that businesses do that, you know, freelancers just tend not to do? Yeah. I mean, it's the structure thing, really. It's, it's process. So first step always for me is to, to figure out, okay, where, where do I want to go? What's my intent? What is the vision for this thing? I think as freelancers and as solopreneurs, we kind of, guilty of sometimes just plodding along and not taking the steps to look back at where we've come from, look forward at where we might want to go. And so as a result, there is a lack there of structure, a lack of vision. And, you know, again, you might tell me that that's wrong in your particular case, but I think generally from a freelancer's point of view, that's one of the key things that I generally see that we're not as eager to plan forward, to look backwards, to benchmark, to look at data, to make assumptions, to pivot to move and to kind of push in the right direction as businesses are and then again looking at this kind of thing of uh, specializing in on the market we don't do that as much as businesses would do we limit ourselves to one product effectively which is the service that we offer more often than not and if you look at any business in the world look at google for example they have a motto which is do one thing really well yet they have gmail youtube um, android and all these different areas of business that provide them revenue and if one fails then they can still survive as a freelancer if you're just pinning your hopes on having that one service then ultimately you're gonna and um, if that fails struggle to pay the bills next month or whatever you know so and um, so is that thing it's, it's having an understanding that it's a it's an unstable model and doing nothing about it that's another thing that i think businesses would never do businesses wouldn't say yeah okay well this is a this is a really unstable model so let's just go with it um, and, and take our chances on the fact that we can find new clients to, to kind of fill that pipeline. I think a lot of the time they would put things in place that ensured that there was just a little bit of a buffer zone there. So that's that. I think process as well, again, and, and figuring out that, okay, to do this certain thing uh, this way is going to take an investment of time this much. That has an opportunity cost of whatever that is. And we, as freelancers and as solopreneurs, often just take the hit from that point of view. If it was a business, they would look at that and say, that's a waste of resource. I'm paying that person X amount. They shouldn't be doing that job. Hire somebody else that's a quarter of their salary or whatever. I think, as again, if you were to multiply the size of the freelancers by like 10, then it would be unsustainable as a business. And if, if you kind of did everything exactly the same. So as a business, again, you'd identify things like that and say, yeah, you know, we need to hire somebody that's lower skilled to do that particular area of the, of the work because you know, that's uh, it's inefficient and it's costing us too much money. And then again, it's looking at, okay, vision, structure, um, how do we go out and attack a market? Who is the market? How do we describe that 
as best we can. How do we put ourselves out there as a voice and as a platform and being a little bit more aggressive really as well about, about bringing in um, interest and attracting people in. So via advertising and, and things like that. So I think the one danger there is citing Google and doing all these things is that when Google started, they did not do all those things, right? They were the search company. And then they yeah. monetize search. And now they do all this other random stuff because they've got, you know, millions and millions and billions in the bank. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, like at the beginning, if they said, let's do Gmail and let's host the servers for that and let's do all this other stuff, would it really have succeeded? No, but I think what they identified was that in order to be stable, in order to grow to be the one of the most valuable companies that, 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 that ever was, then I think they identified a need to, to grow into certain other areas. Um, but yeah, you know, I think Google's perhaps not a good, exa- good example, but it goes without saying that as a freelancer, if you're relying on that one form of revenue and that is cut off, then you're in a really risky position. Um, so what I would recommend, um, looking at it from a freelancer point of view rather than a multi-billion dollar uh, business, um, looking at secondary revenue streams, so having a look at, okay, well, how can I convert my knowledge into something of value to others that I can sell? You know, like a book or like a an ebook or a video training course or whatever, and again, that's supplementing that primary income stream. So I would always recommend putting in place, if you can, uh, efficiencies and things that can deliver you uh, a secondary income stream beyond that that initial one. Because again, the freelancing game is fairly unstable, and if you just live with that, then you're kind of living with that that risk willingly. And I think the key thing to remember at the beginning, too, is to build them around your core competency, right? So me doing mostly e-commerce membership sites, building something that is, you know, say an early purchase, an easy lower end purchase for my clients, like an e-commerce taste test course for them to look at a bunch of the e-commerce platforms without needing to engage me full time. I want to hark back a little bit to you were talking about processes. For the sake of conversation, let's just say that I have this friend named Charles who is really bad (laughs) at coming up with good processes for things. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you do that, especially if you're a business of, say, one or two people, maybe a virtual assistant? Yeah. Again, I, this is a question that I asked myself, so I kind of I figured out a process for making processes, which mm. was uh, what I built was a, was a kind of a, a yes-no diagram. And, it, you know, yes-no diagram starts by saying, look, does this make you money? Yes or no? And, again, it starts by understanding that, right, what am I doing on a day-to-day basis? So, sorry, I'll, I'll rewind a second. What I recommend to begin with is saying, okay, well, where is my time currently being spent? What processes are at play in your business already? Because whether you know it or not, like, for example, appearing on this show, that was a process. Um, we've turned on Skype. We've found the guest. We've uh, all turned up together. We are chatting beforehand and we've hit record. And afterwards, another process will occur. Whether we're laying them out or not in a process map, and um, there's still a process going on here. So the key really is understanding what processes are going on what tasks we are doing, and then putting in place physical processes then around that. So saying, okay, to get this podcast up and running, what are all the links in this chain? And them all out one by one and putting them in what I call, a, well, what is called a swim lane process system. So saying, okay, here are all the blocks. Now let's have a look at each one of those blocks. Do I really need, need to do that block? So finding the guest, do I really need to do that? Or can I make a system or process that can do things more efficiently? This next block, okay, what's this one? Right, okay, let's find out whether I need to do that or whether I don't need to do that. So the first stage for me is always getting out uh, an app like Harvest, uh, which is uh, harvestapp.com, I believe. And if you can, putting time tracking in place to say, okay, well, what am I doing at this moment in time? What am I doing at this moment in time? And by doing that, you'll track on a daily basis all of the things, all of the things that, that are taking up your time because what the objective of processes is to do is to make them more efficient, either by 
you not doing them entirely because they don't be useless to your to the growth of your business and they're not providing any value whatsoever, or so that you can hand them over to other people who can do them seventy percent well as as well as you, um, for whatever seventy percent less in terms of cost. So the first stage is tracking where your time is being spent. The second stage is okay. Well, that's where my time is being spent. These are all the tasks that I'm doing on a daily basis. What are these tasks? What category do they fall under? Do they fall under customer service? Do they fall under marketing? Do they fall under production? Do they fall under uh, research and all these other different areas? And then say, okay, well, I'm pretty much without me even knowing it, I'm a business here with several departments that has several people doing different things, albeit it's all that same person, it's all me. So how can I then build a process which says, okay, this particular block of time, this particular department, I can push that over to somebody else. And because you've understood, right, okay, well, here are the processes, the links in this chain, and because you've written those down, it makes it easier for you to uh, hand those off and outsource those separate bits to different people. So as I say, the first step for me, understanding where your time is being spent. The second step is saying, right, what category would these tasks fall into? And then the third step is saying, right, what processes are at play in my business already? And then just writing those down, so writing down the key blocks. So step one is this, step two is that, step three is that. And then for each one of those steps, then putting out the yes-no diagram and saying, right, is it really worthwhile me doing that? Could I have a, a, a piece of software or a system that made it quicker? Could I hire somebody that would do it 70% well as I could? Does it make me money? Does it not make me money? Do I need to do it because it's you know public speaking or something that I really need to, to do? Um, all of these things fall into a process, whether you've written them down or not. It's about um, being explicit about what the process is at play and then how that can be made more efficient, either by using software in certain areas or by hiring somebody into certain blocks of it. Um, does that answer the question? <laughs> well, not so much. Give more questions than answers. No, I think it's definitely a good place to start, and it, it gives me a lot of ideas for just breaking down the process of building out processes for my business. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's, it's uh, the way that you describe it, and it, it sounds like it, it's very smart, but it really does sound like even these large Fortune 500 companies, one of my big clients just laid off a huge number of employees, and it was clearly because they said, well, these businesses are just not profitable for us, and someone went, or many people went and did those calculations. Um, I guess the difference is that if it's just you, you know what you can and can't do, and these measurements help you to identify then other things you can do and maybe that you want to do, which are worthwhile doing, which are most worthwhile doing, which, to be honest, I mean, I do a whole bunch of things, and I don't think I could point to which are and are not the most profitable or the most worthwhile. Well, a good example for me, and again, I'm in some ways, I'm guilty of not outsourcing enough. As an example, I, I love doing videos. I'd love to do more videos. I'd love to um, sit in front of the camera and, and do them all day. But the, the problem I have with it is that I have to write the script. I have to then sit in front of the camera and do it. Then I take the audio and the, uh, the video files. I marry them together. I do the editing. I put the titles in. I upload it to Wistia. And all these links in this chain I'm doing myself. Now, it's false economy for me to think, oh, well, I'll just do it because it's taking me time. It's taking time away from doing that key bit that I like and the key bit that makes the value to me, not necessarily the most profitable bit, the, the sitting in front of the camera bit, but it's the most enjoyable bit. You know, I, I don't necessarily enjoy sitting there and, and chopping up tens of minutes of, of video, but I just do it because at the moment I don't have a clear enough process for doing it. I know all the blocks are there and in most of the areas that I'm, I'm working, I have blocks that have either people doing them or I have a system that, that just works it for me. But in this particular case, it's about picking out, all right, well, it's not necessarily the most profitable bit or the most important bit. It's about which bit do I enjoy doing most and 
by doing the other area of it, am I losing the opportunity to do more of that, to double down on the bits that I do enjoy doing? So looking at myself, it would be a case of, okay, well, let's figure out a way of hiring an editor, putting in place a, a system that allows me to outsource most of the bits that don't necessarily enjoy doing and that don't necessarily deliver me enjoyment. And um, the profitable bit is, is the kind of secondary bit. If they're not profitable either, then it's a complete waste of time, really, in effect. But we just do it because that's kind of just the way that we, as you know, small businesses, work. All right. Well, are there any other areas that we haven't talked about that we should cover before we get to the picks? Yeah, not so much for me. I mean, um, yeah, we've covered a lot of area, covered a lot of ground there. Really, I think. Yeah, we definitely talked about enough areas to, to jump into the picks from uh, from my point of view. Anyway, but again, if there's any questions that, that you've got from things that have kind of been left unanswered or whatever, then I'm, I'll be happy to uh, pick those up before we jump into the picks. Doesn't sound like it. I do want to give you a chance to kind of explain what Freelance Lift is and give people kind of the two-minute pitch on what your book's about so that okay. if if they're a good fit for either the website or the book, that they can mm-hmm. uh, take advantage of those resources. Right. So from the book's point of view, then, anyway, the book is a compilation of everything that I wish I'd have known the first time around. A lot of the time as freelancers, and this is the same for Freelance Lift as well as the book, we pick up notes, ideas, uh, and angles, and we've got a pretty good idea of what it might take to make more money, to pin down our dream client, to generally make freelancing more stable. But for the most part, we don't. We put the time in place to do it, but that time either lapses because of procrastination or because we don't know which bits to tackle first. So my job with the book was to say, okay, Let's break it down. Let's put it in a specific order, which is where the evolutionary cycle comes from. So it's saying, okay, let's have a look at this bit first. Then we'll have a look at this bit. Forget about the other bits for now. Let's move on bit by bit and put it into an order that we can all follow that is logical that if you need to and you you know, if you already know that stuff, you can skip along, but it just puts it in an order that beats that procrastination really. That's what I wanted to do for, for this. So obviously the milestone of reaching accumulated million dollars was the turning point, the driver for for actually putting pen to paper and and writing the thing. But the need for me to sort of warn people against going down the track that I went down last time was what was what drove this book and was what drove me to build Freelance Lift. And Freelance Lift is a selection of uh, video content, short book content, loads of blog content, got a podcast on there as well. And launching in January 2015 is Freelance Lift Pro, which is there to give you that element of accountability. As freelancers, as one-person businesses, it's easy to feel as though we're working alone. So that accountability, having people working alongside you, achieving the same goals on a monthly basis uh, with direction from somebody who's been there and done it, like me, and having that tunnel vision. So we do a a monthly four-hour workshop where we work on a particular goal every month. The theme for each month is, is in and around that goal. And the point is to have tunnel vision on achieving that moving on to the next one month after month and building something credible from a tiny freelance business. Awesome. All right, let's go ahead and do the picks. Curtis, you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I'm going to pick two podcasts. One uh, is the sales evangelist and we had Donald on uh, a few episodes ago uh, and I was over on his show and that went out last week. Uh, and I've also shared my full intro email template there. And then the other one I want to pick is the soul of enterprise, which I've recommended before, but the specific episode is, I don't have episode numbers here, but they talked about brands, which is a lot of what we talked about today, specializing and then having like a sub-brand that serves, say, the lower-end clients while your main brand serves the higher-end clients. Nice. Eric, what are your picks? 
All right. So one pick I found, it's an article called, Would You Hire Yourself for Freelance Work? It's interesting because, you know, a lot of times you might get to a point where you think, you know, you're really good at what you're doing, like the actual tactical stuff, like, you know, good at developing, good at design. But this post kind of helps you get out of that a little bit and kind of take your client stance. Like, you know, you might think you're really good at something, but how does that actually come across to your client? So not just in like your branding and marketing, but like, are you actually the best? You know, are you actually helping the client's problems? And I think that's something that's really important. A lot of people miss that is, you know, you need to be able to present stuff to your clients so that they can understand you, but you also need to do it in such a way where it's, you know, human and it's not very robotic and not arrogant at all. So it's an interesting, you know, short post someone did. They actually did this kind of reflection on themselves and I think it's useful for everyone. Yeah, I like that. that sounds good. I'm going to definitely check that one out. Awesome. Reuven, what are your picks? Uh, I've just got one pick this week. I've been starting on these screencasts for one of the higher tiers of my ebook, the Python book that I, that I finally released. And so I've been using ScreenFlow to do my screencasts, and I've really been enjoying it. And I realized that I've only used the tip of the iceberg. So there's just a huge amount of functionality in there that I'm slowly but surely learning how to use. So uh, if you're a Mac user, ScreenFlow is definitely worth looking into. Very nice. I've got a couple of picks. The first one I'm going to pick, Eric talks about freelance chi, and I just want to pick it because I was reading the articles, and that's how I ran across Liam's blog post, is that it was in freelance chi, which was awesome. So thanks for that, Eric. The second pick I have is John Sonmez is coming out with a new book called Soft Skills. If you're a developer, it's kind of a life manual for software developers. So he talks about a lot of the other things that you need to understand in order to balance out your life and things like that. So... Super awesome. Anyway, those are my two picks. Liam, what are your picks? Yeah, so I've, I've, I've got three. I'm being a little bit uh, greedy here, but hopefully they're all, uh, they're all high value. So the first one is, is just a little bit of inspiration, really. Um, inspiration as to the importance of putting together valuable content. So you, you talked briefly about content marketing as a, as a, as a path, as a strategy for, for, you know, for, for marketing effectively. And what, what GrooveHQ, GrooveHQ.com have done is grow from zero to 100k a month in revenues. They're a software company, so it's not strictly service provision, but what they've done is build that pretty much off the back of great content, content and reaching out to influencers and, and just providing value. So uh, they've reached that 100k a month target, which was target from day one. Uh, so it's a great read and has some uh, great uh, looking back at what has really worked for them. Second one is more for, for my designer brethren, um, and that's one of the common questions we get is, behind slow quickly behind um can you make my logo bigger it's that common client sort of statement of right i need everything above the fold i don't believe that people will scroll and i need arrows and stuff pointing downwards well huge inc who are an agency based in london i believe and um, they've done some uh, research on that and what they found is that often well most times and i think it was like 80 percent of times regardless of what the difference was on the page Everybody scrolled. Um, so it's a link that people can just grab and, and throw over to a client if they ever make that, that statement. And then the third one is, is just a big idea to, to ponder, really. Corbett Barr, who uh, is founder at fizzle.co, great guy as well. He put together a post on his, his new blog, actually, which is a fairly new blog, corbettbar.com, on entrepreneurship. And it's just forward slash entrepreneurship. And um, it's that everybody has a little entrepreneur inside them. And what he believes is that it should be nurtured as a, as a life skill. So rather than, you know, there's a, a meme a few years ago of people saying, look, people need to have computing as a, as a life skill simply because that's the way that we're going as a, as a society. 
And what he believes is that entrepreneurship is the same. People should have that element of entrepreneurship uh, encouraged in them and have that as a life skill. So I found that idea really interesting and it's something that, yeah, I go along with. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Liam. It was uh, really enlightening. And this is one of the ones where I'm going to have to go back and, and listen again and just see what's going on and apply this to my own business. I mm-hmm. also want to quickly remind folks that we are in iTunes, so if you could leave us a review there, that would be awesome. And if you want to get these episodes in your inbox, I am working on automating that. So if you go to freelancershow.com and scroll down a little bit, you'll see that there is an email opt-in form. And if you fill that out, then you can start getting the episodes in your email box. Um, I'm probably going to start doing that around the first of the year, so just keep an eye out for that. And yeah, thanks again, Liam. No worries. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, we'll uh, wrap this up. We'll catch you on next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.